And then we're going to get into God's Word. Wouldn't it be nice when we can fellowship together and just greet each other as we would normally? Fantastic. Well, it's my privilege to bring something of God's Word to you this morning. And if you have a Bible, if you'd perhaps like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be delving into that in a few moments' time. But in case you didn't know this morning, that song we've just sung is based on an ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, which is a 1,700-year-old document which, while the foundations of the Christian faith are kind of declared in and agreed on, and the church has done for nearly 17 centuries, if you like, and these are key doctrinal beliefs. And if you take them out, if you take them out, if you like, the Christian faith just doesn't stand. It just doesn't work. It's just there are some doctrines that um, I would suggest that you are kind of like written in pencil, things that you can be can be rubbed out effectively, things that maybe aren't so important. There are some that are written in ink, and these are the sort of things that I don't know. You and I may be willing to may be willing to uh, stand on, and others might though disagree. And uh, you can accept that. But there are some things that are written in blood. And I'd suggest these are the things that we're willing to, to die for. These are the non-negotiables when it comes to our Christian faith. These make Christianity what it is. Effectively, Christianity just can't survive without these things. And these are the things that are, nice, are stated in the Nicene Creed. And the centerpiece of that creed is the resurrection. See... Without the resurrection, the, the gospel is just, well, it's just not good news. It's essentially the thing that everything else hinges on. And that's the thing we're going to have another look at this morning. We're going to spend a few moments really this morning going over the basics. Now, perhaps you might say this morning, well, I know all this stuff. I know, I know how it works. In which case, that's great. But let me challenge you with this question this morning then. If you know it, do you really believe it? And how does it affect your worldview? And how you go about your life in the world you live in today? As I said, for a few minutes, we're going to delve into, into Paul's closing words to the church in this first letter to Corinth. We're going to be covering verses 1 to 28. But now Ed is going to read to us the middle few verses from 12 to 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that, that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen. You might have heard it said before, there are two types of people. There are two types of people. In my world, there are two types of people. There can be red people or blue people. Slide, Adrian. 
there can be also, I'm apparently informed, two types of people when it comes to some of our home behaviours. And there are also two types of people where definitely the world is divided onto those type of people who like this product and don't like this product. Now let's have a quick show of hands this morning. How many are on the Love Marmite camp? Hey, excellent news, excellent news. Well, you've got a treat this morning because I've got some Marmite to give away. Not only have I got normal Marmite, but I've got something called Dynamite. If you haven't seen this before, it's chili Marmite. How many people like chilies in the room this morning? Okay, well, if you're a chili fan, then this is for you this morning. First one to grab it as I go past the door. Now, for those that really like a strong Marmite taste, apparently now they're doing like a craft Marmite. Marmite XO, and you could, have, you could be the lucky owner of this this morning as well if you grab this as you go by the door. But certainly Marmite is divisive, and of course those things are relatively trivial, except perhaps the toilet seat, apparently. Apparently that's not something that's so trivial at all, apparently, I don't know why. But there is one thing that's defining, I guess, one thing that should be defining, one thing that's incredibly important, the way of defining, I think, the world. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. It's in what the thing that Paul focused on this morning in the passage that Ed read. There are two types of people. Those who believe, those that believe that Jesus is still dead, and those that believe he's alive. And that's the difference, I think, in categorizing two types of folk. Probably it's the most important division you'll ever find. It's the one that tells you all you need to know about a person's way of making decisions about their life trajectories, about their eternal futures, about, about everything, really. Do you think Jesus is alive, or do you think he is dead? Because where you stand on this, well, this will, this will dictate your worldview, your perspectives. on It will dictate the life trajectory that you have. And I'm sure many of us can recount stories of people who have who have encountered Christ, believe that he has rested, and therefore they have chosen to direct their lives in a certain direction. And it seems almost as though they've, they've sacrificed things, they've given up things that would make no earthly sense unless there was some truth to this reality of a resurrected Jesus. And for Paul, in this passage, this is the thing. It's... It's the be-all, and it's the end-all. It's the clincher. For Paul and for us, the argument is this. If Christ wasn't raised on that third day as according to scriptures, we are to be pitied. We shouldn't be worshipping a Jesus. Why would we be here? It's essentially what Paul's saying. But if he has been raised from the dead, well then to live, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And it's an either or that situation Paul is framing in the whole of these verses from 12 to 19. The middle part of this chapter in the verse that Ed's read. If Jesus is alive, then this is the biggest thing that's ever happened. Pursue him with our whole hearts. But if not, if he's dead, well frankly, why are you here? Let's, let's eat, drink and be merry and worry about other things. So what Paul does is Although it gets to the middle passage, right at the beginning of the passage, he reminds us at the start, this essence of the gospel, which is good news. Jesus has risen. 
going to read a few verses from the beginning of this passage now. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep, which means they've died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he also appeared to me. Now, some of you might know this, some of you perhaps you don't, but scholars would say this, this passage, this letter that was written, uh, probably AD 50, 53, 54, something like that. And what we have here is an eyewitness account of the risen Jesus. And Paul is making literally a reference to hundreds of other witnesses to the risen Jesus. While most of them are actually still alive. It's within a 20, 25 year window maybe of, of the happening, of this actual resurrection happening. And this is incredibly significant on a historical level. Because if we just read it as a historical text, forgetting that it's in the Bible for a minute, that hundreds of people are bearing witness to the event of Jesus rising for the dead. This is unprecedented in terms of historical documentation. Jesus... Jesus was raised from the dead, and then we read on his body was found missing. And we know historically that his body was missing, because it wasn't in the tomb that had been placed. And well, the Jewish authorities and the Romans authorities who were trying to stop the spread of Christianity, if they could have just simply gone to the tomb and produced the body and said something like, well, guys, here it is. Oh no, it's not there, it's here. Well, it would have been all over. And everyone said, oh well, that explains it. There we go. But that's not what happened. There's no writing, there's no record of them doing that because they couldn't find it because he had been raised. So we have strong, if you like, historical evidence of the empty tomb and very strong evidence from multiple witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Eyewitnesses, over 500 it says here. And the simplest explanation of that is that Jesus in fact was raised from the dead. Now, you could come to other conclusions. And if we were committed to a belief like miracles cannot happen, that raising the dead can't happen, it's impossible. And if we're certain of this, though the evidence to the resurrection points towards the most sensible and logical answer, but if we insist on saying, well, that can't happen, well, the only way we can be certain that has happened is if we can be certain that there is no God. And I think you've got to work pretty hard to be absolutely positive that there is no God. You can't be certain of that. And if you can't be certain that there's no God, then you can't be certain that there is no miracles. And therefore, you can't be certain that Jesus wasn't raised. And you need to consider this carefully this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'd ask you to look really hard at the evidence. And if you're a Christian, you should be confident to know this. This is well-grounded historical stuff. Three examples briefly of New Testament scholars on this subject. And interestingly, uh, one of these guys, oh, one of them's not working. Oh, well, never mind. They all look roughly the same, New Testament scholars. 
The guy on the left, he's a Vermez. He's not actually not a Christian. In fact, he's of Jewish Albanian descent, I think. And he may have seen some of his programs on Channel 4. And um, he's written a book called The Resurrection. And uh, his, the basic conclusion to his book is, well, the evidence points towards a resurrection, but I don't believe that could have happened. So we need to find some other example. Now, he is... Well, you can look him up when you get home, but he is a, a renowned scholar on the subjects. And then, of course, James Dunn, who were missing, and Tom Wright. These guys have given their lives to this. They're not soft. They're not deluded. But their, their, their conclusion is overwhelmingly, the resurrection is the only real answer to what has happened. That Jesus has indeed rose from the dead. And as Christians today, this should give us confidence that this stuff isn't fanciful or hopeful, that this is based on good, sound, academic, historical evidence. And if you're not a Christian today, as I said before, I think you need to look really hard at this. See, look at it hard and see if it stands up. But of course, as we've already read, Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul talks about the evidence, then he talks about the facts, if you like, why this matters, why Christ, and then he looks at what has been done, verses 12 to 19, then he goes to verses 20 to 28, looks at what has been done, what will happen in the future because of the resurrection. And that's what we'll look at for a few moments this morning, briefly now. So let's read together verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through also a man. For as an Adam will die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. And when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. But when this is done, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So for Paul, it's not just that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but all those who are in Christ are also to be raised. And what is Paul is saying is, if you understand the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of you in the future. And he does that with two verses in verse 20 and 23. He uses the image of first fruits, which takes a little bit of explaining, I guess, in our kind of non-agrarian culture. But if you're, if you're a fruit farmer, if you're a crop farmer, then the first fruits is a sign that the harvest is coming. And actually, in those days, you would offer that first fruit as a sacrifice to God. It's the first fruit that's offered to God as a sure and certain sign that the rest of the harvest is coming. Now, I think there are probably easier analogies for us today. Uh, perhaps an easier way to think about it is this. When you see a lightning flash, what are you then expecting? What have you, each of you expected? Now, we know this to be true. We can go outside in a storm and we can see the lightning. And then my granddad, I think, used to tell me, count. And then you know how many miles away the thunder is by the claps. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but it was a good story. 
But it's the physical reality. You get the lightning, and then, sure enough, shortly afterwards, you will get the thunder. It's going to follow. We're not waiting for it. It might not happen. It's not a question mark. This is a sure and certain thing. And what Paul is saying is the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus has pierced the skies, if you like. It's lit up. Lit up the world. And we're waiting then for the day, the day when it comes, and that every person who is in Jesus, in one massive, like thunderous noise, if you like, will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus has risen, so also we are too to be risen. That's the, that's the explanation, if you like, Paul is illustrating there. And then Paul goes on and says, you know, you, he uses the image of us being in, in Christ rather than being in Adam. You guys die because of who you are in, not necessarily because of what you've done, but because who you are in. And actually, your life in the same way, not because of what you've done, but who you are in, your lineage, your family, your race, if you like, are bound to Adam, who is afflicted with this thing called death, which means that you're going to die. But just as in Adam you all die in Christ, so, so you all shall be made alive. And Paul is saying that on that basis, we can be certain that we will be raised up. So not only Jesus is the first fruits, not only is he the lightning bolt, if you like, that guarantees our future, but you know that you will be raised because actually you've been invited. You've been, you've been, if you accept Jesus, you're adopted into his family. You're now no longer of Adam. You're now longer, you're part of him and part of his eternal promise. And then you will get raised up, not because of anything you've done or deserve, because you're in Jesus. And then having thought about that, the resurrection from the dead, in verse 24, then comes the end, when he will hand over the kingdom of God, the Father has after he's destroyed all dominion, authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So having conquered everything, this victorious Savior will hand over the kingdom, if you like, to the Father, and it will reign perfectly forever and ever. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And this is the good news of the gospel. Paul has communicated, if you like, what Jesus has done. He's risen from the dead. What he will do, he will return in glory and hand over the kingdom to his father. But I think the question a lot of us ask, we know what the future is, we understand some of that stuff, and we know what Jesus has done in the past, but what about now? What's he up to now? And sometimes, I don't know about you, I remember our children asking us often, well, well where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? Today, what is he doing? What's he up to? I can't see him. What, what's he about? If we look at verses 24 and 25, we get something of an indication of that. And it's, it says this, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a picture, if you like, of Jesus seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father with his enemies, if you like, being turned into a footstool. In other words, Jesus doesn't disappear from the scene between Easter and the resurrection and his turn as judge. 
Sometimes people, I think, or we can think, he does. He rose from the dead and he disappears into thin air and he doesn't do anything now until, until he returns again. And in a million or a thousand years, whatever you want to work that out with, he'll return in judgment. And between now and then, he's not doing anything, but that's, that's not how it is. According to the gospel, Jesus ascends, ascends to the right hand of the Father and he reigns throughout history with all dominion, authority, and power until he has put the enemies under his feet and turned them into a footstool. And the last, the last of his enemies is death. And once he destroys that, at that point he returns and restores life, raises the dead, and rules in triumph forever. We probably don't think much about the ascension in our kind of church. Probably we think about the resurrection, which is wonderful. Maybe we, t- we think a lot about the return of Jesus, which is also wonderful. But I think the, the ascension can get lost a little bit in, in the way we think and the way we speak, but there's absolutely no Christianity without it. Without the rule and reign of Christ over all enemies on this earth, until they are placed under his feet... Well, there's no Christianity. There can't be. And we tend to imagine, I think many of us, this relationship between the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, we tend to think of a little bit like this. Like, actually, the race has been run, and then there's a victory lap afterwards, and the real work is done over the Easter weekend, and the ascension is a nice kind of, I don't know, a triumph parade or a victory lap afterwards. But to be honest, the race is already over, and everyone's got their medals, and everyone knows who's won, and it's not really the main thing, the main event. But perhaps this morning I'd just like to offer you maybe a different window on that or a different image of that this morning. Perhaps it's like this. Perhaps it's like the relationship between you, if you chose to, and I'm never going to do this, but to build your own house. And you build your own house and then you live in it. And the relationship between getting something or getting something ready, doing the really hard lifting and then enjoying the fruits of your labor and working out how you might inhabit that place and getting it just so. And the reason you go through the trouble of building your house or an extension or whatever it is, is so that you, it's not to so say you can go, well, that's very nice, and then just move on. No, it's so you can have the joy of living in it, of experiencing it. And you've invested blood, sweat, and tears, and now you live in it and you dwell in it. And perhaps you sit down, and once you've finished your work, you sit down and you have a glass of wine or a beer and you, you, you ponder over it. Jesus is now seated, seated with the Father in glory. And he's ruling over his enemies. And it may always not look like that, but that's the truth. And one day, all will be placed as a footstool. And he's ruling. And he hasn't absconded Never to be seen again, which is good news, I'm sure. You'll like, you think that. But he's raised from dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father while the enemies are being placed over time under his feet. And he pours out his spirit on us for we are to be, for we are to be part of that, part of that victory, part of that conquering, part of that that dynamic 
And he pours out his spirit on us to enable us to do that. And we'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But all the word also says he's, he's interceding for us. On our behalf, he's sat next to the Father, interceding for us. Longing to pour out his love and his strength upon us. Longing to, to bless us, to encourage us, to cheer us on. Longing to meet with us. Longing to love us. Longing to hold us. As a Christian, it's so crucial, I know that experience. The ascended Christ in the now. In the now. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know where you've been this morning or in these past few weeks. I don't know where your life has taken journeys and turns. But let me assure you of this. The ascended Christ, the one who's not dead, but is alive, wants to be with you this morning, is interceding for you this morning, is looking on you this morning. And it might seem like a long way off when Jesus is coming back. And it might seem a long way off when he returns. But today, in the present, he is for you and he is with you. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that this morning? In a few moments, we're going to sing again. And we're going to pray. I'm just going to ask God, by his spirit, to come to you this morning. That you might experience the ascended, majestic love of Jesus. See, the resurrection is like this, this triple whammy, you could say. Acting in three different directions. It points to the past and it assures us in Christ that he's conquered death. And in that we have been given righteousness. And it points to the future of a certain hope. A certain hope of his resurrection again. And our resurrection again. But it also points to the present. The fact that he is ruling and reigning in power right now. And actually wants you to know that. And he wants you to experience that through his love. Through his Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads. Father we thank you for Jesus this morning. Thank you for Easter. We thank you for the resurrected Christ. Father, I'd ask this morning that that you would that you would make yourself known afresh to everybody in this room today. By your spirit. Come Holy Spirit.
Father, we declare this morning that all our, our past is in you. And all our future is in you. But Lord, we do place today in your hands as well. The things of the day. The things that we're facing. The things that we're battling through that are being challenged with at the moment. Lord, would you place that vision in our, in our minds today of, the, of Jesus, the risen Christ, gazing upon us this morning, wanting to pour out his love Pouring out his peace, his hope, his promise to never leave us or forsake us. Father, it's this is the first time this morning if you've um first time just maybe looked to Jesus said maybe the old prayer this morning is Jesus I want to place my past in your hands and my future in your hands Lord would you make yourself known to me maybe that's a simple prayer you could pray this morning Father, would your love come now? Holy Spirit, would you would you invade hearts and minds this morning? Maybe now 